0: church. It is so good to be with you. I got a little spring break last week, gone last week, but good to be back. My name's Ethan, one of the ministers here. So glad to be with you today. I brought a pie with me today, uh, and I'm prepared to give it away. I worked very hard to make this pie relevant as a sermon illustration uh, today, uh, but I failed to do that, so I just brought it. Uh, and here's the way this works. Uh, and This is for you that are online. Uh, get ready to use the comments because this is going to be relevant. Uh, and here in the room, get ready to raise your hands. I'm about to ask a question. And if you know the answer to this question, and if you're the, if you're the first person to type the answer to this question in the chat, then we will uh, we'll send you a pie, okay? The chat hosts are ready, don't worry. So just type the answer to this question in the chat if you're watching online. Here in the room, if you're the first person to raise your hand and you give the correct answer, then I will put my mask back on and hand you this pie. Okay, so the question is, why did I bring a pie today? All right, all right, here's the first hand I saw right there. Why did I bring a pie today? It's pie day, March 14th. Three, one, four, those are the first three digits um, in the uh, decimal representation of the number pi, um, which of course has no actual de- representation, but whatever, that's a different conversation. Okay, here we are. There's your pi right there. It's a real pi, folks. All right. Um, and chat hosts, make sure you figure out whose chat actually came through first, get their address and all that, and we'll make sure we send them a pi as well. Uh, again, I, I worked like forever to try and make this pie relevant. I thought it'd be better if it was like a sermon illustration, and I couldn't figure it out. But I'd already bought the pie, so I had to just do something with the pie. So, and I couldn't just eat them all. So, anyways, okay. Um, what are we talking about today? Oh yeah, oh yeah, Easter. That's not what we're talking about today, but I got to talk about Easter too. Uh, it's not just Pie Day. It's also three weeks till Easter. Um, don't forget to register for Easter. We, I'm really excited about our Easter uh, service and the series that we're launching out of it. I think it's going to be useful and helpful and spirit filled. I'm looking forward to hearing the sermon myself uh, because I want to be reminded of how the resurrection just changes and redirects everything. I need a little resurrection in my life uh, this year. We're going to have indoor services and outdoor services. We're going to have services on Saturday and services on Sunday. We're going to have some in the sanctuary and some in video venues. We're going to have all kinds of services in all kinds of ways so we can serve as many people as possible. Uh, There are two really important things you can do, and this really makes a difference. If as many of you as possible can register early. And tell us what service you're going to come to. Obviously, attendance patterns are crazy this year. Um, some of you who have been attending online probably will want to come back in person for Easter. Uh, that would make sense to me. Some of you are going to want to stay online. some of, it, it's, it's crazy this year. And so it's harder than ever for us to predict. So if you can go register early, please do that. Of course, when you register, if you're able to register for an off time, either early Sunday morning or Saturday, or an off venue, register for outside or a video venue, that saves room for those who will be registering late and might prefer something else. So if you're able to do that to make room for others, that's a huge blessing to the church. So please register early. Uh, The second thing I want to ask you about Easter is to invite someone. People need hope right now. We've all gotten kind of stuck in our own boxes. We are waiting to be invited out to things. So here's what I suggest. Invite them to church and a meal. Maybe you're going to go to dinner on Saturday, then come to one of the Saturday services, or go to brunch on on Sunday and then come to one of the late Sunday services, or something like that. But make it not just an invitation to church, but an invitation to life again. You can figure out how to do that in a COVID-safe way based off where you are with all that. You can actually pull this off. But make that invitation. You know people who are ready to be invited back to life, and especially not just back to regular life, but back to the life of Christ in them. And that's what our Easter series is all about. I got one of these in the mail uh, just the other day. Maybe you got one of these too. I really, our graphics team did a great job. It says Easter at FCC on the front. On the back it says this. Let's agree, it's time to get back to living back to friendships and plans and joy. And this Easter, let's not just get back to living. Let's get back to life, the kind of life we haven't even realized yet. And it goes on to talk about what we're going to do together and how Jesus is ready to bring us to new life. But right now, as we prepare for Easter, we're still studying the book of Acts, reminding ourselves of the significance of God's local church to do God's work in the world. And the urgency of this series is just so clear to me as I look at our world right now because our world is wounded. Everybody I know thinks the world is wounded somehow. We might not always agree on what the wound is, but everybody I know thinks the world is hurting and needs help. And most people, in light of that, the wounds they see in the world, most people I know are asking, how can I make a difference? How can I contribute to this? And in response to that heart cry, lots of people have an answer. It feels like everywhere you turn, somebody is rising up to give their voice to say, here's how you can make a difference in the world. Here's how you can help heal the world, right? I mean, there's all the COVID-related advice related to that, you know, wear a mask, stay home, spread out, worship outside, learn how to Zoom, order takeout. That last one is, I feel like my biggest contribution to COVID has been ordering lots of takeout. Like, that's what I've done to help keep the world safe. Maybe you've done something else. What I've done is order takeout. So, uh, but anyways, but more than that, right? It's not just the COVID stuff. I, I just kind of was just going down the memory of the last year of all the things someone has asked me to do in order to make a difference. In the last year, I've been asked to march, sign petitions, use a hashtag, change my social media profile picture, serve the homeless. I've been asked to vote early. I've been asked to read a specific book. I've also been asked to not read that same specific book. I've, asked to quit re- I've been asked to quit reading so many books and instead go out and serve my community. I've been asked to hold a sign, to shout a chant, and to stand in silence. I've been asked to kneel in solidarity. And I've been asked to specifically not kneel, also in solidarity. And every time I was asked to do any one of these things, it was always by somebody who was trying to love their neighbor better. Every time, even when I was being asked to do opposite things, both people were asking me because they saw that the world was wounded and they thought if we did that thing that they were asking me to do, it would, it would make the world a better place. And I know sometimes it's easy with all that advice out there to just sort of give up. You know, the world's wounded. There's nothing we can do about it. It's just going to stay wounded until Jesus comes back. And, and of course, it will stay wounded until Jesus comes back. But mostly, I think, we aren't inclined to just give up. I think these answers interest us because they all make the promise, this will make the world a better place. And knowing that, I will say just for starters, it gives me some compassion for all those people, especially the people who are asking me to do the opposite thing. Because both of them are asking me to do those oppositional things out of love for the world. And it helps me raise my compassion to remember that the motives are, are, are to bless the world, even if they disagree on how to bless the world. So all these voices telling us how to make the world a better place. But but not all these strategies they offer are equal. I mean, for starters, a lot of these strategies just don't work. I'm, I'm not super persuaded by the changing your social media profile to save the world strategy. I don't know. Maybe it does more than I think it does. But, but beyond that, not all these strategies are equal, not just because they don't work, but because some of them are wrong. You know, riots are not a moral strategy for world change. Calling people names Simply because you disagree with them, even on important matters, is not a moral strategy to change the world. Some of these strategies, I suppose, are morally neutral. It all depends on why you're doing them and how you're doing them. You know, nothing wrong with a hashtag, I suppose. And and marches do a lot of good sometimes. You know, some marches are needed. Some of these strategies are obviously good strategies. Uh, Serving those in need, feeding those who are hungry, voting. If you live in a democracy, participate in it, you know, be a good citizen. All those strategies are obviously good. But what do we do? What do God's people do if we want to make our world better? If we want to heal the wounds of the world? Well, the strategy that God left us is to be God's church. That's the strategy God left us. The church is God's plan A to accomplish God's good purposes on earth. I was talking to somebody a couple weeks ago who'd been hearing the sermons in this series, and they asked me, they said, Ethan, we're pretty sure in one one of the sermons you said... Uh, That the church is the hope of the world. Did you mean to say that? They were curious, Uh, and I I said no. I absolutely didn't. Uh, And for instance, just you know, if you're curious, if you like it when the preacher says silly things, you should definitely record this service right now. Because the first service after time change is when I'm most likely to say something that I don't mean. No, I don't mean the. I don't think the church is the hope of the world. Christ is the hope of the world. The church is God's chosen instrument to announce Christ and embody Christ until Christ returns. The church is the signpost of the gospel, the advance guard of God's kingdom to lead people into a saving knowledge of Jesus. And if we do that, the world will change. And I know there are all these other paths And all these other voices saying, no, the way we're going to change the world is to vote in this guy or this gal into office. Or the way we're going to change the world is this with this new social media campaign. Or I I know there's so many other voices. And if you, like me, have the heart of a skeptic, and I do have the heart of a skeptic, maybe you're asking, Ethan, is there any evidence that just being the church could actually change the world? Has such a thing ever happened? Has the church really ever changed society? Because it's a fair question. Because like, if the church never has changed the world, well, we probably should try one of these other things. Marching or hashtags or kneeling or not kneeling or shouting or silence or all that other stuff. We've got to try something, right? We can't just leave the world wounded. Well, if you wonder... If the church, just by being the church, has ever done such a thing, I want to tell you the story of one of my favorite churches from the book of Acts. It's the church in Ephesus. Now, I'll be clear, the church in Antioch is my favorite church. We actually did a whole sermon series on them called the Second Church of Antioch because I think that church is so awesome. But Ephesus is a close second. The city of Ephesus was an interesting test for this young church. Ephesus was a religious town. The cult of Artemis was headquartered in Ephesus, and the cult of the emperor for that region was also headquartered in Ephesus, and they were both big business. They were dominating religious forces in that region, well loved by the people, well honored by the social and institutional structures of that city. The city of Ephesus was a religious town and in that day to be a religious town meant it was a deeply idolatrous town, the worshiping of idols, the purchasing of idols, the honoring of idols. Ephesus was a political town. It was the seat of the local Roman governor. It was powerful in the region. Now, there were no elections to vote in, of course. Power came from the emperor, but still, it was a a city of power politics. And to be a political town in the ancient world meant that the path of power was everything. And the way of the cross. Was nothing. The people of Ephesus knew how to change society. They knew how to deal with the wounds of the world. It was with the power of the emperor and the legions he commanded. The city of Ephesus was a wealthy town. Some say second only to Rome for its power and influence on trade and commerce and economics. And like every wealthy town, it protected its excess and resisted the path of generosity. And the city of Ephesus was a proud town. They were proud of who they were. They were proud of their role in society. They were proud of the Artemis cult and the emperor cult and the seat of the governor and their wealth and their harbor and their walls and their streets. And if some church thought they were going to change Ephesus, change the culture, the very fabric of the city of Ephesus, well, then there would be a culture war. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? A church out of step with the way of their culture, butting heads, trying to figure out who's going to win. Will it be the path of power and politics and wealth or the way of the cross and generosity in Christ? But the church of Ephesus did not give the city of Ephesus a war, they gave them Christ. And Christ won. I want you to see what I mean. Uh, and to do that, I can think of no better way than just, I'm just going to tell you the story. And this is straight from Acts chapter 19. If you've got a Bible with you, you may want to follow along. I'm going I'm to just read a bunch of it. It's, just a, it's a very simple story, but it's kind of long, so I'm just going to read a whole bunch of it. If you've got a Bible on your phone, maybe you want to pull out your phone, flip open to Acts 19. I just want you to see what happens in the city of Ephesus. Acts 19 verse 1. While Apollos was ministering at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at the city of Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, No, we've not even heard that there was a Holy Spirit. Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? And they say, John's baptism. This was John's baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, Well, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance, He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were about 12 men in all. That phrase, 12 men, probably is meant to represent 12 families, is the idea here. So that's the state of those who are following Jesus when Paul arrives in Ephesus. 12 families just, just for the very first time learning about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became resistant. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. That's the early name for Christianity. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with them, and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Did they rent the space? Was Tyrannus an early convert? How close to downtown was it? I guess we don't know the answer to all those questions. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving on evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a little tongue twister for you, a, chief, a Jewish chief priest were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them overpowered them all, he gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house, naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. Passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Two years from 12 families, two years of ministry. Verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and he said, "'You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia.'" He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Not just danger. In fact, that's exactly what happened. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were furious. They began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before them, but the disciples wouldn't let him go. Even some of the officials, we talked about it being a seat of power, some of the officials of the province, now friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. They shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. The clerk quieted the crowd. And said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess." If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what's happened today. In that case, we could not account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. I'm not sure what you make of that story. Here's what I notice. How do you measure the impact of a church? You know, it's nebulous, isn't it? Right? You kind of measure it one life at a time. But in the city of Ephesus, In a two-year period, this dude Demetrius, who sold idols of Artemis, noticed something shifted about his business model. Profits were down, yet silver was just as easy to acquire as it had always been. Labor costs had gotten it's been relatively stable for that two-year period. His marketing team had done a better job than ever, getting their statues in all the right stalls and all the right stores. Yet still, the numbers were off. And he began to inquire what had happened. Why were people not buying the idols like they used to? He discovered then that that tourism was down. People weren't traveling into the city to worship Artemis like they used to. A little more research, he discovered that, that, in fact, the temple wasn't full nearly as often as it had been. He asked around a bit more, and he discovered this one very simple reason. More and more people believed not in Artemis or the Emperor, but in Jesus. In two years, 12 families had brought down a religious empire just by converting people to Christ. The own proconsul says it. it, says they've never robbed you. They haven't attacked you. They don't even talk about you all. They haven't even blasphemed you. I think I would have blasphemed Artemis. You ain't not done that. They don't even talk about Artemis. They just talk about Jesus. And so many people trusted in Jesus that they didn't buy your statue anymore, Demetrius. Maybe you should switch and start making crosses. I've always assumed that's what Demetrius did, by the way. Savvy business guy. Don't you sort of think he just stopped making Artemis statues? That's what I mean, that's my theory anyways. But it wasn't just that the religious culture of Ephesus shifted. The political culture shifted. Ephesus was the seat of power in the region, and they cared only about power, and there was no voting block to appease. Yet we see official after official protect the early Christians and protect Paul. Why? It could only be because they'd come to respect the church. Maybe they themselves had become followers of Christ. The economy has shifted. People are having to change jobs because the lordship of Jesus Christ has so transformed their culture that either nobody wants to buy what they're selling or they themselves, it describes the sorcerers who just realized this profession is corrupt and they just walked away because of the lordship of Christ. How did all that happen in two years? There's no record of a petition to end Artemis statues. There's no record of an appeal to the governor or the consul or the emperor to force people to start going to church and stop worshiping the temple of Artemis. All there is is just the church being the church. Spend some time in Acts 19 if you need to go back through it. I know I read through it quickly. What do we see there? We see discipleship. Paul meeting with Christians and educating them more fully when they were confused about something. That's where it starts. We see public gatherings, first in the synagogue. And then when they're no longer welcome in the synagogue, in the Hall of Tyrannus, intentionally gathering in a public way that anyone could join and so people could participate and be welcomed into the body of Christ. We see spirit-empowered service. We've talked the whole time from the very beginning. When we say that the church is God's plan A, it is God's power. And it is Christ's presence. We're just the plan. And that's what we see here. By the power of God, the church is able to serve in unprecedented ways. And that still happens today. And on top of that, we see personal mission. You just have to know those 12 families made a commitment to tell everybody they knew about Jesus Christ. To invite people. Paul did not do it on his own. The text lists all these names of all these people that are there, kind of integrated in the Ephesian community, sharing their faith in the context of their lives. One chapter, two years, they go from 12 families to the total disruption of the Ephesian religious economy by no strategy other than just converting people to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so they no longer worship idols, so they don't buy from Demetrius, so they no longer practice sorcery, so they burn all their books, so they no longer honor the emperor, they honor Jesus. And so the the local leadership's got to figure out what's going on. And I just wanted you to know, I believe this still is the calling of the church today I don't know what wound you look at the world and you see most clearly. My guess is God has wired us up to see different wounds. Maybe you see the wound of poverty or you see the wound of racial division or you see the wound of abortion or you see the wound of not enough people with meaningful work or you see the wound of marriages being destroyed by pornography. I don't know what wound you look at the world and see. But if you tell me what you want to see healed in the world, I think Ephesians 19 tells us how. We work as a church to help people follow Jesus. We make disciples. We worship in a context that is welcoming and inviting to the outside world. We make our worship, we make sure it's, it's ready for people who don't yet come. We love everyone in active service, consistently serving others. That's what we see in Acts 19. And we live like missionaries, recognizing And I tell you, some days when when everybody shouts that what the world needs from me most is a hashtag or a march or a bumper sticker or whatever, I've got to remember, no, there is nothing I offer the world more important than Jesus Christ. And the same is true for you. There's nothing you offer the world more important than Jesus Christ. And so, if you have organized your world so that all you ever offer them is all the other things you have to offer, and listen, the other stuff you have to offer is also awesome. But if you've organized your whole life to just offer them that and never offer them Jesus, well, you're missing the strategy of Acts 19. Our decision to bear witness to Christ matters. If you want to save the world, then you're going to have to introduce the world to the Savior. And it's not you. In Ephesus, their decision to to just teach people about Jesus publicly and house to house throughout the whole region, it, it mattered politically, it mattered socially, it mattered personally, it mattered economically, it mattered religiously, and most importantly, it mattered eternally. Next week, we're going to look at the book of Acts, our last sermon in this series, and we're going to talk about what we can learn from the book of Acts, about how you can be more effective at sharing your faith, how you can be a more effective missionary, because that's all through the book of Acts, the the call that each one of us is a missionary. Because you are, we are God's plan A to tell the world about the saving grace of Jesus, to tell the world about his lordship, to tell the world the good news that there is a kingdom that has been established under the rule of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that next week. This week, I just want to say this. Would it help you remember to invite somebody to Easter if you knew that not only would it change their eternity, it might change your city? Would it help you remember to, to serve the world uh, in, in love in the name of Jesus Christ, if you knew that not only would it help them eternally, it might heal the fabric of our society? Would it help you commit to discipleship if you knew that not only would it, would it have eternal consequences as we love Jesus more deeply, but it also might heal the wounds of our world? Would it help you be the church if you know that a hurting world needed us to be the church? Because that is the testimony of Acts 19. Go read it. All they did was be the church. That's all they did. And their whole world, this powerless, penniless, influenceless group of 12 families had the power of the Holy Spirit. And they had the good news of Jesus Christ. They lived faithfully as missionaries for two years. And Demetrius had to start a riot because nobody would buy his Artemis statues anymore. That's how much they changed the world, just by living faithfully as God's people for two years. Listen, I know and I believe that God cares about the wounds of our world. And Christ is that solution. And we are God's plan A to live out God's kingdom and tell the world about Jesus. And I really want you to know the story of Acts 19 as a testimony to how it can change the world if we just live together as God's people. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Acts 19, for the reminder that the world is changed when God's people are faithful to Jesus Christ that the most important thing we can do for the world in order to save the world is to introduce the world to the Savior. And I just pray that that might mark us as a people. I pray that we might even this week be looking for how can we be the church and live as the church in such a way that we heal our world in this day and eternally. Help us to remember, God, that there's nothing we have to offer more important than when we can offer someone hope in Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.